Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and as always, I'm so glad to have you listening. Today, we have an interview with Erica Woodland, who is a licensed clinical social worker, a Black queer or genderqueer facilitator, consultant, psychotherapist, and healing justice practitioner based in Baltimore, Maryland. He has worked at the intersections of movements for racial, gender, economic, trans, and queer justice and liberation for more than 18 years. In 2016, Erica founded the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network, an organization committed to advancing healing justice by transforming mental health for queer and trans people of color. In this interview, we talk about Erica's childhood, growing up Black and genderqueer as the eldest child of a single mom, lessons he learned from work burnout, queerness as radical imagination, healing justice organizing, and the danger of prescriptive self-care approaches, and obviously much more. There are a few key moments I'd like to pull out from the interview to highlight um, words of wisdom Erica shared. In lieu of a multitude of announcements, although I would like you to keep raising money for the Loveland Foundation by purchasing a zine on the Living in This Queer Body website, but in lieu of any more announcements, I'd like to invite you to Let Erica's words resonate within you before we start the interview. Thanks always for listening. And you can find all things, upcoming workshops, ways to work with me, all things living in this queer body at livinginthisqueerbody.com and on my Instagram at livinginthisqueerbody. So some of the the really poignant moments and there are many. So please continue to listen to um, the full interview as well as check out the links in the show notes. Um, Some of the poignant moments. My body is the primary way I make sense of the world. Bodies are expensive in the context of capitalism. What has been set up for us is killing us. There's a world that is, and a world as it should be. Thank you, Erica, for taking time to share your wisdom and experience with us. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for making the time to join me on this podcast. I'm so glad to hear we talked a little bit before. I'm so glad to hear that you're a fan of podcasts. Um, and maybe at the end, we can talk about some of the podcasts you really like. Um, but it's really, it's really lovely to have you here. And I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. 
So I like to start out by just asking folks to to reflect and and wherever this sort of takes you, but to to talk about your earliest memories of either realizing what it meant to be in a body or messages around being in a body. Ooh, this is a, such a loaded question. When I was thinking about this um, earlier today, it was actually really hard to go back because I think there's ways, especially as a black genderqueer person, I haven't felt like I had autonomy or sovereignty in my body. Yeah. But I do remember, and I tell this story often about being a little one and being really clear that bodies are expensive. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like bodies require things that require money. And in the context of capitalism, mm. there's, there's this experience of burden that I experienced mm. um, in a body as a young person. So, so some of this has to do with race and class and poverty. And, you yep. know, being raised by a single mom and being the eldest child and being, you know, expected to hold down a lot of responsibility. Mm. I remember being a little one and being like, OK, people are playing on the monkey bars. That looks like fun. How about I don't do that? Because if I get hurt, that's going to stress my mom out and we don't have any money, you know. Mm. And so that's actually um just such a powerful um, message to get so early on that it still shapes how I relate to my body. But I remember feeling like I, it was too expensive to get sick. So I don't recall being sick as a child, but now that I'm more in my body, I'm like, Oh, I was probably sick regularly. I just didn't stop. You know, Mm. I didn't didn't feel like there was space for me to, um, you know, be in the role of being sick because there was no one to take care of me. And I had to take care of, um, a lot of things, including myself and my younger sibling. So there is this piece around mm. um, the body being a burden. Um, mm. And that wasn't something that was directly told to me, but it was, you know, the stress that was in my household because of white supremacy and capitalism and mm. misogyny. It just really shaped um, that disconnect from the body for me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, when I hear you talk about that, I, my, my mind kind of immediately speeds forward to, okay. And now uh, amongst other things, you're, you're a therapist, you're a person who is in a position of um, potentially, you know, offering care and I, I suppose I just wonder what, what happened in in sort of your evolution from being a child who felt like the body was a burden and it, and it was you know i mean i think mm-hmm. that that's the thing right. is that it it was it's not it's not the per, it wasn't a perception it was you know based in in lived reality and i think um so so in any case i guess i wonder how how kind of what has shaped your relationship to being a caretaking human um and also someone who who hopefully you know receives care and has has figured out ways to navigate receiving care um when 
white supremacy and capitalism are still, you know, same, same, right. You know I mean? Same, same structures. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I, you know, my first, my first healing crisis, which was the first time I burnt out was in my mid twenties. And I was doing a lot of organizing work. Um, Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of harm reduction work. I was spending about, you know, (laughs) 25 to 50% of my time in working with folks in jail and prisons. Mm -hmm. And I started seeing an acupuncturist who's a black lesbian, which was very important at the time because had it not been someone that I could relate to for my community, I don't think I would have been able to receive that kind of care. But I remember she said to me, and I was like 25. (laughs) Oh, I was not, I was just not really, um, I I was engaging in a lot of um, behaviors that was really keeping me out of my body, right? Mm -hmm. So lots of caffeine. I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I was drinking, I was smoking weed. It was just like a lot of, um, just a lot of, substance to kind of numb me from the body and also, you know, take care of trauma. Right. Of course. Mm -hmm. But she said to me, she was like, you're depleting your life force. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's actually what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And you, that's not something that you can like manufacture, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. you come into, you come into the world and you have chi and you have a certain amount of, of life energy. And if you, keep moving at this pace, you're basically taking years off of your life. And, you know, I heard that and I didn't want to hear that. Um, at that point, we were just working on drinking water, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, mm-hmm. you're not drinking any water. Like, let's start there. So I appreciate her because she kept it real and she really let me know what was at stake. But that was the, one of the first interventions around burnout and the way that I was yeah. engaging in my work and caring for others and not caring for myself. Um, that was really transformative. And I, I think about that often because had she not been that clear and honest with me as a young person, I don't think I would have made the changes that I ended up making, you know, over the next 15, 16 years um, that really have, has led me to a place of realizing that so much ha- so much happens in all of our bodies but my body is actually a primary way that i make sense of the world and i didn't know that because i was so disconnected mm. can you say a little more about that about what you what you mean by that your body is how the primary way that you make sense of the world so i think part of coming home my particular body has been realizing how much my intuition resides there. And, you know, these are things that we, we all know, right. It's not like specific to me, but as, as a person who feels and perceives a lot of things, right. Perceives a lot of things about myself, about other people, things that are in this realm, things that are outside of this realm. I was like, Oh, I thought that I thought the body wasn't really giving me information that I could use in other parts of my life. I thought it was just giving me information about what was happening physically. Mm-hmm. And so coming, coming home to my body has also really happened alongside a parallel and connected process around my spiritual development where I'm like, oh, there are a lot of things going on in this body. 
And there's a lot of wisdom and information and it's actually um, more safe and easier for me to survive in my body now because I understand it. And there have been times in my life where it was actually important for my survival to be disconnected from the body. And so, yeah, that journey has been really humbling. Um, it's not like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm in a practice like we all are around maintaining that connection and really yes. tending to um, what the body needs. And every day I have to tell myself my body is not a burden. Right. Mm-hmm. But when I realized that I actually really enjoy being embodied, <laughs> that really opened up a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it opened up, opened up a lot emotionally. It opened up a lot in terms of my work. And it gave me, um, it pointed me towards actually other healing modalities outside of the psychotherapy container that actually allow me to do this work in a way where I can tend to burn out um, really proactively. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate you mentioning, and I'd like to hear, you know, if you want to talk about some of those things outside of the psychotherapy realm that have been that are sustaining for you, but I appreciate the way that you framed, um, you know, like some of the substances you're using, some of the ways that you were coping, um, and managing your body earlier on when you were in your twenties, given the work you were doing, the demands of the work that there was some, there was a way that, you know, that trauma, is require often requires a body to kind of override certain impulses or feelings or it it makes it difficult for us to kind of reside in our body um in in a way and sometimes makes it it, it isn't safe actually um right. and i think you and i've talked a little bit but i want to hear m- more about it you know like in terms of discourses in the quote unquote wellness or healing spaces, discourses around um, embodiment is something I'm, you know, really interested in because I think that many of those discourses really um, miss the, the point in a way comes to, you know, what it actually means to reside in your body, um, especially as someone who lives with, um, you know, acute trauma or intergenerational trauma. Um, and so I don't know if this is really a question. It's sort of just the kind of like opening up a a part of the conversation where I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you've, how you've navigated this idea of like continually returning to your body, but also, um, caring for the the ways in which it at times doesn't feel safe to um, to kind of sit with with the body that you you reside in. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate um, where we're moving because it's there's been some really big lessons that I've learned the hard way <laughs> and mm. continue to learn the hard way about mm. my body. Mm-hmm. So. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was like, okay, self-care, drink more water. Like, there yeah. are these, you know, I love a routine, right? Um, Capricorn <laughs> rising. I love a routine. Let's get, <laughs> let's get it. Um, and so I started to build in routines that are very essential and very important. And then I got to another place around burnout in my work where I was like, oh, 
there's something more here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was like, what does it mean to actually be in deep communication with your body moment to moment around need? Right. So yes, yeah. here's the amount of water you need to drink in a day. Yes. Here's how many times I need to see my body worker. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm not actually doing those deeper check-ins, then things can become easily prescriptive in a way where I'm actually not still not in my body. Yes. And so one of one of the challenges that I've had with wellness and kind of the healing industry and the proliferation of kind of all different kinds of fads, whether we're talking about, you know, had so many people be like, you should go raw. I'm like, that does not work for me. Literally, like Mm -hmm. I have really bad digestive issues if I eat in that way. And so um, I think one of the challenges that I have is that anything that is moving us towards being prescriptive yeah. is really dangerous. Um, it's really dangerous. It, it feels like it's reinforcing ableism. It feels like it's reinforcing mm-hmm. this idea that there's like one way to be in a body. And a lot of the work that I do with myself, but also with all the different um, containers where I do healing justice work, I'm like, what does it mean for people to come back into their own inner wisdom around their bodies, both the physical body, the emotional body and the spiritual body. And I, I get worried, you know, that I think that's why I'm trained in a lot of different things. Right. So I just named my rising sign. Like I I study astrology. That's one of my Mm -hmm. meaning maps. I integrate it into my work implicitly all the time, but there's ways that explicitly it's appropriate to bring that forward. But Mm. if that doesn't work for people, I have other tools. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that as we're thinking about wellness, as we're thinking about our well-being and this kind of, you know, booming industry around wellness, and even I'm thinking about like, you know, the Instagram therapy <laughs> that's happening. Yep. I'm like, how do we remind people of the expertise and wisdom that they have in their own bodies? And how mm. do we appreciate that our trauma responses are intelligent? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, and wise. And I, you know, I try to be in conscious relationship with my trauma responses, but I don't try to make them go away. Um, and so sometimes, you know, in addition to some of the ways the wellness and kind of healing industry just reinscribes white supremacy and queer and transphobia, um, you know, I don't. I don't know that we need to be moving towards us all doing one thing. Um, And I know why there's the impulse to do that. Right. Because if you've been healed by something you want, you're like, look, this works. Everyone should do it. Sure. Um, But we need to be careful around proselytizing because just because something works for you or a group of people, it it actually might harm other people based on Mm -hmm. what their body needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really, I mean, I really appreciate you saying, you know, that I don't try to make these intelligent trauma responses go away. And I think so much of, you know, the healing industrial complex is and wellness, particularly wellness industry Mm -hmm. is, is, does ask us uh, often to um, kind of pathologize our own, um, the way that that trauma can reside in our bodies and 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 sort of eliminate that like there's a lot of kind of ridding ourselves of these mm-hmm. um these troubling complicated bodies um 
And I, yes, I, I mean, I agree with you that the kind of internal, like there's so much ableism and white supremacy that's sort of integrated into these discourses and about sort of eliminating um, messiness in the body. Um, what I would call messiness in the body. It's not really actually messy. It's just a body, but it's, it's a, you know, a complex, um, a complex organism that has inherited, you know, inherited so much um, and holds so much. And so I guess, you know, I'd be curious to hear more from you about what, what you feel has has been working for you in your life in regards not in a prescriptive way like in terms of your routines but rather like what what practices or what spaces or communities like feel or or other humans you know feel like they're also invested in kind of embracing the messiness of Mm -hmm. the body and are you know like the healing justice work that you're doing um yeah maybe you could just talk about that a little bit because i think we meaning the listeners here and we in general really need kind of some counter narratives to challenge some of these dominant discourses absolutely you know when when healing justice as a framework came to me it really contextualized my entire journey around this work Mm. because I um, I actually went to college and was planning on going to med school and did the whole pre-med thing. And at the end of my pre-med requirements, I was like, I don't want to take organic chemistry. I'm going to take a class on the Black Panther Party and, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, really, um, really look at other ways of dealing with our health and well-being in the context of community and in the context of care protection and safety, right? Mm. And really naming the socio-political conditions as the root of our suffering. Yes. And so, and so as someone who I, you know, I, I use the word healer, but it's hard to use that word because it means everything and nothing. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. as someone who who engages in healing work. Um, in a lot of different contexts, in the context of therapy with organizations and through the network, um, I think a lot about what it means to um, commodify and monetize certain kinds of practices, right? Mm-hmm. And and we're in a moment where it's like everywhere you go, there's capitalism, right? So I'm not here to like <laughs> have any kind of opinion about someone's business, right? Um, but I think we do need to be really careful and cautious around how we're holding our responsibility as healers, how we're holding our responsibility as mental health practitioners, how we're holding our responsibility as spiritual practitioners and the sacrifice that is connected to that, um, the accountability that is connected to that and how we're ensuring that we're in communities where we are rooted in a set of values so that our practice and be moving towards liberation at all times, knowing that we're human and knowing that we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of what I'm really appreciating about, you know, even my personal practice at this time is coming back into like actually 
shaking up my routines, right? Like a really small example is I just moved back to the East Coast where there are really strong demarcations between the seasons, right? And so Mm -hmm. as we're moving into spring, I'm like, you know, I'm noticing what's happening in the natural environment. And I'm like, oh, I actually don't have to get up at the same time anymore as when I was as during the winter, because Mm -hmm. now it doesn't take me as long to get out of bed because I have more energy, right? Because I'm in relationship with what's happening seasonally. And so something as small and kind of insignificant as that has changed how I feel in my body for the past two weeks, because I was paying attention instead of being like, no, you get up at 615. That is the time you have to get Mm -hmm. up. Um, And, you know, not related, but sort of related. I think one thing I do want to kind of go off about for a moment is the spiritual bypassing that is also happening in the wellness industrial complex, the self-care industrial complex, and in a lot of um, specifically spiritual contexts where folks are engaging in practice to actually be more disconnected from what it means to be human. And, you know, I've really struggled to find spiritual communities where we're actually moving towards like fully inhabiting the, the human experience and and creating culture and the conditions to be supported through that because being a human is a whole fucking lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's hard it's like there's so many times I fantasize about the other kinds of animals I want to be when I come back in future (laughs) lifetimes because I'm like being human is a lot and you know beetles seem like they're having a good time you know maybe (laughs) maybe that's the way to be um but I find that you know, because of, because of capitalism and the way that it can really have us thinking that we're doing something helpful, but really we're just doing the same thing that has been done to us. Mm. Um, Yeah, we don't, I feel like I just want to have a bigger conversation about that because I feel, I feel really outside of a lot of spaces because I'm like, I don't want to use, for instance, this meditation practice to pretend like white supremacy doesn't affect me as a black person. That is not, yes, <laughs> that is right. absolutely not why I go to, you know, Sangha. Um, mm-hmm. but, I, but I feel like it's happening in a lot of different contexts. And I think that the more we're able to engage in the embodiment conversations um, is really going to help because I know that all of these practices and traditions are really ultimately in many ways about embodiment. But then we're still using these embodiment practices to bypass the, the ultimate goal. And I find that really fascinating and I find it really scary, especially for um, queer and trans BIPOC communities. Yeah, I, I would love to hear more about that from you. Like what is when you say especially for, you know. For the communities that you you know, you founded the, I'm just looking at what it's actually called, the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network. And I think just thinking about this idea that you're, you're really, from what I understand about, you know, your work, you're really trying to address the specificity of 
embodied experience, right? Like spiritual mm-hmm. bypassing is sort of the, the, like the opposite of that, right? You know, I mean, we're really talking about the specificity of embodied experience in the context of um, late stage capitalism and mm-hmm. a white supremacist culture. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, those, those are the conditions under which, and I think that when we, when we, I guess what I hear you saying is that when we lose the context, when we mm-hmm. sort of bypass, um, the context in which, you know, these meditation like retreats or whatever are happening, um, or these, these self-care practices are happening. If the, the, you know, end goal is not kind of collective liberation, um, then, then what, then, then it's, it's sort of just capitalism on, on repeat. Um, Mm -hmm. is that kind of where you're, what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had this conversation a lot with Kara Page, um, mm-hmm. who we work very closely together, and I've learned a lot from her about healing justice. But this piece around context and conditions is so pivotal mm-hmm. because people people are like grasping to healing justice, even, but also self care um, and other kinds of wellness practices, people are grasping because we're looking for something because we're suffering. Yes. So I don't, I don't ever want to pathologize yes. that, that desire. Like I want something so I can feel better. I want mm-hmm. something so I can feel safety. I want something to help me feel a sense of belonging. And, you know, I have, I do a lot of management of expectations when people want to learn about healing justice. Cause I'm like, it's not going to save us. You know, it's a particular set of strategies that work in a specific context right Mm -hmm. but the most important thing that that i integrate in terms of all my work around healing justice is we have to constantly be assessing the context and conditions because especially right now where crises are escalating at a speed that you know hasn't happened in my lifetime if we're not constantly assessing the context and conditions then our strategy around healing and well-being are not going to be in alignment yes and so one of the the pieces that also feels really integral is this piece around consent and self-determination, right? Mm-hmm. So how are we, uh, again, I, you know, I think this is also why, like, sometimes I, like, I have big critiques of social work, but I'm like, I feel like I'm such a social worker sometimes <laughs> because I'm just like, let's figure out all the different possibilities of what could work based on individual people's differences and needs, but also community and geographical differences and needs. And like, I want a buffet. I want a like very Mm -hmm. amazing buffet of options for our people. And that is why I'm like, yes, therapy. And a lot of times in my own personal journey, I've actually needed to not be in therapy because I can talk circles around therapists Mm -hmm. and I intellectualize. And so actually body work is, is sometimes actually that's usually the core piece that really helps me with the integration of any of the healing work that I'm doing. Um, and so again, how are we supporting people to understand their context and conditions, right. To understand and to also map what are the resources available based on their context and conditions and how are we supporting people to actively choose things instead of, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like coercing people into a practice. Right. Yes. Um, And I think that that's really hard. You know, I I love that everyone I, you know, I just have so much internal contradiction around therapy. Right. For all of the obvious reasons. And I'm like, 
you know, I remember I was talking to someone recently who was like, yeah, I think so-and-so needs to go to therapy. And I'm like, maybe they do need to go to therapy, but maybe there's some other kind of healing practice that they need yes. to engage in. Right. And I am not going to say therapy for everyone. Like that's just not, it's not it. Even if you addressed all the barriers and even if you find a like really dope Gucci BIPOC therapist, that container might not be the one for you to do mm-hmm. that, that work. Um, and so for me, I really think that uh, healing justice as a framework is where we're trying to move Gucci BIPOC practitioners specifically because it just, I think, allows more spaciousness. It, it brings in more spiritual and energetic resources because I think the therapeutic container is it, it really sets up the therapist, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, we're, we're responsible for all the things and we're kind of attached to this field that is very concerned about liability and, and things that can make it really hard to like hold space. Yeah. Um, but as soon as I shifted my work to a spiritual container and a healing justice container, I was like, Oh, okay. So the practice that I do, like my ancestral practice, that's, at my back as I'm holding space with other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really just a conceptual shift because I think that was always true. Um, but I think it's really, really been powerful to see um, how the network is helping to shape the way we think about these things by just creating a space for other practitioners to talk about this. And most of our practitioners are trained in other healing modalities also. That's the reality is like, we, we know the limitations of, of therapy and we know that we're complex beings. And so we need more than one way to heal. Yeah. What you're talking about is um, particularly important when it comes to like (sighs) these messages. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, call it maybe, you know, healthism, um, this, these ideas that are embedded that are, you know, ableist ideas embedded in wellness culture that are about like the responsibility of quote unquote wellness or healing or being well, um, whatever that means. Right. But is lies within the individual. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's such a decontextualized idea notion of health and wellness. Um, and, And so I guess, you know, part of what I hear you talking about with, you know, your involvement in healing justice work and training is, is that there, there's the therapeutic context often reinforces that notion Mm -hmm. of healthism, you know, Um, and that it's kind of like a, it's such a inter, it's so interwoven with capitalism and, um, you know, white supremacy white supremacist cultural norms. Um, and so I, you know, it, it, it's very, I think it's really important. I wonder if you, if there's, there's something you can kind of point to, or, you know, an example of, of a way that you see some of your work, you know, your healing justice work and the people that you're working with and influenced by kind of doing work that, that does go against the grain of healthism, like go against the grain of this idea of, you know, the 
you know, that person needs therapy. Um, and that's exactly, you know, like that's yeah. their, that's on them, you know, like yep. they gotta go, they gotta find a therapist, you know? Yeah. I love the way that we've now weaponized therapy. It's really mm-hmm. scary mm-hmm. and sad. It I, is. And, and I get it. You know, we, um, we're all suffering and sometimes all suffering. our suffering bumps into other people and we don't like mm-hmm. it. Um, so of we want course. them to get it together. Of course. I'm definitely, I've definitely been guilty of that. Same. You know, <laughs> So some of the things that I feel really excited about right now in this moment yep. are, you know, the, the conversation um, among social workers around abolition and carceral social work. I feel really excited um, about folks who are thinking really critically about the institutions and the broader mental health system that we often represent and the legacy of harm and violence, right? Mm-hmm. That that obviously we did not create, but you know, when we're connected to those institutions, people um, experience us as part of the system of harm, right? Yes. And it's really easy to be like, well, I'm not like that. And maybe you're not, right? <laughs> but we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about systems and structures. That's so right. mm-hmm. I think a lot of um, the conversations that we're having and moving towards are really thinking about what is the long-term infrastructure around healing justice, Um, How are we engaging in inside and outside strategies? Which strategies are going to be ones that are um, visible? What strategies are are we going to engage in that are subversive? Um, And really starting to get clear about what is the training that we all need so we can actually be prepared for the crises to come, right? Mm. Because I think, I mean, I, I know for myself, I was not prepared like i i'm really um i can predict a lot of things like (laughs) usually usually things that are not so positive and i don't like that a lot of things that i thought about the pandemic ended up being true i don't Mm -hmm. like that but Mm -hmm. but that's what it was me knowing it was coming didn't make me prepared at all (laughs) you know yeah because i can't as an individual be prepared for a pandemic like (laughs) we need all of us to be aligned and coordinated Um, And so I think we're having conversations about building infrastructure. We're having conversations about like, what does it mean to organize mental health practitioners who, you know, aren't used to, aren't used to even considering themselves kind of part of movement or have desires to be part of movement, but don't know where to fit. Yeah. Um, And so it feels like a really remarkable moment for healing justice. And it feels like a really remarkable moment to actually look at how we need to be intentionally addressing intergenerational trauma in our movements because yes. of the, um, the, the ways that that trauma gets weaponized by the state, you know, mm-hmm. to be honest. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I say this a lot. I don't feel hopeless. I'm, I'm definitely a pessimist in general, but I don't feel hopeless about this moment because, you know, I am in relationship with people who I feel like are really (laughs) brilliant and who are actually really excited about creating new structures and systems, right? Yeah. Being willing to throw them away if they don't work, you know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) from this place of non-attachment, like, oh, we tried that, that shit was whack. Okay, let's try something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's it's an important moment because I do think healing justice is being manipulated in a lot of ways that um, is just leading to more harm. And so mm. we actually need to, to get in front of that because we, knew, we 
we know that this is what happens, you know? Yep. Um, you know, anytime you have funders talking about healing justice, which is, you know, they should be talking about it, but now we know that the way that philanthropy, for instance, can kind of shape what um, our movement work looks like. You yes. Know? Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's, it's a heavy lift, but there are conversations that I did not think I would see in my lifetime. Like mm-hmm. last summer, I've been an abolitionist for 20 years. People, people were looking at me sideways, like, what in the hell are you talking about? And people are still looking at me sideways, right? Sure. But I was like, I'm watching CNN and they're talking about abolition <laughs> on television. Right, right. You know, like something is different, yeah. you know? And yeah. it's not to like romanticize this moment because it will get more terrifying before it gets better. Sure. But if we don't actually recognize the moment that we're in and um, what's available to us, we're going to we're going to lose a lot more. And I think like spiritually, one of the things I felt really strongly is that every potentiality is available to us right now. Like because everything's so destabilized and, mm-hmm. and it's going to continue to de- destabilize. And some of this I know from the teachers that I follow and work with some of this, I know from astrology and some of this, I know from my body, right. But -hmm. just really understanding that if any potentiality is available, then we have to make sure that we are moving towards the most radical and life affirming possibilities, because we already know what the other side has in store. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really a call for us to get more organized and also to really confront how hard it is <laughs> to do this work as human beings when we are constantly under attack and when we don't have access to the things that we need just to survive, let alone heal from intergenerational trauma. Yeah. 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 And, and I guess, you know, speaking of the sort of most radical potentiality of of any given moment or this moment, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you, how your kind of your identification with queerness sort of plays into that, Mm -hmm. um, that notion of pushing, maybe not pushing limits, but, you know, kind of exploring the edges of what might be possible. Yeah, I love that question. Um, I've been thinking about that question a lot in terms of conversations that I'm having with my family. Mm. Um, because I think when I'm deeply appreciating, you know, as the as the out queer person in my family, and mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I, there's just so many things that I literally don't wake up worried about because I'm like, the world was not set up and organized around me being being alive, being supported, being taken care of. And so that has felt really um, hard and it's felt really isolating, but it means that um, I just know that I have to create my life on my own terms. And so it, mm. it moves me to towards other people who are willing to do that. And so yeah. when I think about queerness, like in terms of my sexual orientation, my gender, even like queerness around like my spiritual practice, I'm like, we, you know, I just feel so honored to be in a community and to be part of a long legacy of queer folks and trans folks who were like, 
what has been set up for us is killing us and we are not participating in that. Yes. And so I think about how do I bring through that thread of queerness and all of the work that I do, right? And, and kind of holding that, you know, there's a world as it is and there's a world as it should be. And I'm very impatient with the world as it is. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm tired of this. Like, I don't want unnecessary death and suffering and violence. Like, I'm, I'm completely done <laughs> with that. And I think what queerness offers me is this radical imagination, right? And I think it also offers me um, reminders that, you know, because we have so many queer and trans ancestors who have charted the way, like I'm often in conversation with them about what to do in this moment. I'm like, okay, we don't have to have it all figured out, but we can ask James Baldwin, (laughs) like, what do you have to say about this moment? Audrey, like, please help us out. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, sometimes I feel, um, not sometimes, I feel grateful every day for queerness because my relationship to my suffering is just really different because I'm like, yeah, this, nothing is set up for me. I have to, I have to really consider what it is that's going to make me move towards what I'm here to do in this lifetime. And, you know, we have a queer community now where (laughs) there there are things that are being set up for us. There are kind of expectations that are being put on us. But when I, when I think about like my really deeply personal embodiment of queerness, yes, I'm like, this shit is all completely up to me, <laughs> you know? Yes. And the more that I can be in relationship with myself and, and other people who honor my relationship with my body, which that could be a whole other podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, it really helps me navigate the world. You know, yeah. it really helps me hold on to hope. It really supports me to continue to commit to healing and to commit to ensuring that my people have access to healing um, because it would be very, very easy to give up, especially right now. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you kind of addressing that, the, that kind of, core sense of of like you know not what (laughs) some kind of like commodified notion of queerness means in in the world structurally but sort of what it means for you in your body and in in your own you know kind of lineage and how how it it represents a framework for radical imagination I, i i really i connect with that and i really appreciate you know, you kind of articulating that. Um, I, I agree that we could have many, many a podcast episode (laughs) discussion, (laughs) more, many more discussions, but um, I want to thank you for, for being here. And um, maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about how they can connect with you and, or, you know, the, the work that you're doing. Sure. So the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network, we can be found on social media at mm-hmm. NQTTCN. And that's also how you find us online on our website. Um, and we're super excited. We're really trying to send out the bat signal to find um, QT BIPOC mental health practitioners. And so that's both licensed, you know, clinicians, but Really, we're interested in anybody who's tending to the emotional and spiritual well-being of our community um, mm-hmm. is, can join the network. And so, Great. 
Yeah, thank you so much for not only this conversation, but for creating this space to really talk about embodiment and and how we how we move towards this collective embodiment that the time is is really demanding of us. Yeah, thank you. 